And as you're taking your seats, you can grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 11. Our, our ministry year theme is growing deeper. And uh, the first few chapters in Romans 9 through 11 that we've been looking at in this year's ministry theme are about growing deeper in our thinking, understanding the depths of God's Word and specific areas of theology. And I can tell you right now that we have reached the deep end of theology. We are right now in the depths. The passage before us and the passage we'll look at next week, we're going to look at Romans 11, 11 through 33 over this week and next week, uh, not your classic Christmas series, but I trust will be sweet reminders in preparing our hearts for Christmas nonetheless. I want to begin by reading the passage so it's fresh in our minds before I, I really give a bit of an introduction and, and maybe set the stage for our time this morning. So let's read it beginning in verse 11. Let's just read down to verse 24. Paul writes these words. He says, so I ask, did they, meaning the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness." Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I remember going to Nepal a number of years ago for the first time and uh, getting a, a first-hand glimpse of the, the caste system um, in the Hindu faith. The, the Hindu faith has four castes, and it ranks from the high caste, which are uh, those who are superior in the culture, those who have the most blessings and benefit in the culture, all the way down to the fourth caste, which are known as the untouchables. And the caste that you're born into dictates where you are going to end up in life. It dictates the kind of jobs you are going to be able to get. It dictates the kind of career path you're going to be able to follow. It dictates the kind of schools you're going to be live, able to live in. It dictates the kind of communities you're going to be able to get a home in. Many of those untouchables at the very bottom end of the scale end up homeless, destitute, and impoverished for their entire lives. I remember thinking, how could people believe something like this? And this is so degrading. It is so awful to think that there is some kind of superiority of some over others. And yet, 
this kind of thinking is common amongst people from all ages and all places. This kind of maybe ethnic superiority or socioeconomic superiority or you fill in the blank superiority is found all over the world and it always has been. The truth is it is often found in our very own hearts. We can look down on people who are different than us, different ethnicities, make different amounts of money, come from a different place. Paul is dealing with this kind of thinking in the church in Rome. And he's dealing specifically with a Gentile population who is looking down their nose at Jews. And their logic kind of flows from the fact that practically they look around and there, there are no, barely any Jews in the church, that God doesn't seem to be saving the Jews. And their conclusion is, well, God must therefore be done with the Jews. They have rejected God, therefore God has rejected them, therefore we the Gentiles who have been saved are better than the Jews. This is exactly what Paul is addressing. There's this kind of arrogance that's crept up in the hearts and minds of the Gentile believers in the church. And this is the reason that Paul addresses the things he does in Romans chapter 11. And what he does is he shows that God, he continues to show, as we saw from last week, that God is not finished with the Jewish people And that God's objective is actually, and Paul's objective in this passage, is to promote humility in both Jew and Gentile by a greater understanding of God's grace in salvation. And this is so crucial for us to understand this morning. This has direct relevance to our lives because this kind of pride, as I've mentioned, this kind of sense of superiority, even as Christians, listen, there is a danger that comes to being exposed in prolonged periods to the grace of God. We can start to presume upon the grace of God. We can start to feel like we deserve the grace of God. We can start to believe that because we have received the grace of God, we must be better than those who have not. Romans 11 can humble us in at least a couple of ways, and that's what we're going to primarily look at this morning. But I want to just maybe mention right out the gates that the first way it humbles us is in this, that it is just so hard to understand. I mean, this is one of the most humbling passages in in all the Bible. Maybe you were wondering where I I was um, for three weeks when I was out of the pulpit. Pastor Brian and Miles were preaching I'm on the Word of God. You're like, well, where was Pastor Ian? The truth is, I was hunkered down somewhere trying to figure out Romans chapter 11. I'm just kidding. I was away. But but I was trying to figure this out. I was trying to figure out what in the world is going on. I was buying time. There have been massive debates surrounding this chapter for the last 2,000 years. There's one pastor... Um, A Presbyterian theologian named James Henley Thorwell, he once got a letter from somebody in his congregation asking what he thought about the end times and especially Romans 11. Here's what he wrote back. He said, I'm only 40 years old and I consider that too young to have an answer. Well, I'm 39, 40 next month. So I don't presume to be able to give you the greatest answer either. I think when Peter wrote in 2 Peter that there are some things in Paul's writing that are difficult to understand, I think he was talking about Romans chapter 11. Origen, the great church father, he wrote these words. He said, only God, Jesus, and a few of his friends know what Romans 11 means. Why is it so hard to figure out? Well, there's a few reasons. Let me just give you just a few. The first because, is because, just textually speaking, when you look at the, the language and, and the, the construction of the grammar, there's a number of different ways that you could possibly take things, legitimate ways that you could understand things. So there are some textual realities that you have to wrestle through that could land you in different places. Another reason I think it's very difficult and maybe confusing to understand is because oftentimes we impose theological systems onto Romans chapter 11. So we come, and for some of you this is going to be foreign, you're like, I don't even know what a theological system is. Don't worry about it. For those of you who 
do, my, my, my admonition to you is a bit of a warning. Be careful that your theological system doesn't drive ultimately your interpretation. Theological systems aren't wrong. They just need to flow from the text. They shouldn't be imposed upon the text. So sometimes we come to the text and we're like, well, my system says I must interpret it this way, therefore this is what it must mean. We need to let the text drive it as best we can as we look at it. The other thing that makes it difficult to understand complex passages is the reality of sin. There's something that theologians call the noetic effects of the fall that has nothing to do with Noah and the ark. The term simply means that, that the, the human mind is corrupted by sin, which means simply this, that none of us are as smart as we ought to be or should be. Sin has impacted our intellectual faculties and our ability to understand the way we should. We don't, we don't understand perfectly. That doesn't mean we can't understand anything rightly or anything perfectly. It just means that there are struggles because of sin. I want you to know as we enter into this passage that over the years, I have changed my view on Romans 11 a number of times. I may change it next week. Some of you may be asking, um, well, what is the church's official position on Romans chapter 11 or on eschatology? We don't have one. There are differing positions. And I say that to make it clear that there is nothing here that should split a church or cause you to leave a church if it doesn't line up with the way you see this passage. If you are bent out of shape by the way somebody is interpreting this passage, so long as it's within the bounds of orthodoxy, and, let's, and you choose to leave a church over something like this, I, I would suggest to you that that's wrong and you're holding on too tightly to what is a tertiary doctrine or issue. This is not of primary significance. It's interesting, it's fascinating, but it is not of primary importance, and there is freedom and room to disagree on the interpretations here. That's my point. And so we need to have charity and grace, and I hope you'll give that to me this morning, especially if you're sitting there going like, man, he is really messing this up. And I also want to be really clear about what the point of this passage is. You see, Paul's aim is not, you got to hear this, it's not to promote speculation or to stir up arguments about the end times. That's not his goal at all. It's, it's foreign from Paul's thinking. Instead, he writes to humble the church under the overwhelming grace of God so that they will joyfully contribute to the spread of the gospel of God's grace to unlikely rebels who desperately need His grace. That's a mouthful. But, but we read the passage first because I wanted you to see Paul's point is this. Be careful that you aren't becoming prideful or arrogant because you have been a recipient of the grace of God. There is a deep call here for humility, and we can all agree on this. The goal here is to produce humility that should affect every single person in the church of Jesus Christ. Every single believer, listen, ought to be a person who is deeply humbled by the grace of God in salvation. Amen? My hope and my desire this morning is to stir up more of that humility. A humility that produces harmony in the church and attracts, listen, this is really important, and attracts outsiders to the church. So two, two points, it's not going to be long on the screen this morning, two simple points, that's because I think we're going to need to really listen carefully. The first is this, we grow in humility when we realize our role. We grow in humility when we realize our role. That's what Paul sets out to explain. What exactly is his role? What is the role of the church, especially the Gentile church? How is God using us and his saving work in us here and now and in the future? I want you to notice the question that Paul asks in verse 11. So I ask, he says, did they, the Jews, stumble, remember they stumbled over the rock of offense, Jesus Christ, over the gospel of grace, did they stumble in order that they might fall? What does he mean by that? Paul says, by no means. In order that they might be done away with. In order that just like, that's it. You had your chance. Now it's over. Is that it? Paul says, no. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Do you, just, do you see the trajectory there? This is so good. In other words, he says to the Gentiles in the church, before you get a little bit too big for your britches and think you're something special, because you are the ones who are predominantly being saved and not the Jews, 
Consider this. Understand this. Realize what God is actually doing. And the first thing we need to take note of in this is is just to see that rejection, especially Jewish rejection, is not the end of their story. But neither is, like we saw last week, rejection for anybody. It's not over till it's over. It's not over for anybody until they have died and are standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Before that time, listen, between the time somebody hears the gospel and rejects and the time that they die and meet their maker, there is still time for the gospel to break the hard heart of the sinner. This is such reassuring truth for those of us who know people, who love people, who have heard and rejected, for those of us who are going to continue to preach the gospel to people who will have ears that cannot hear and eyes that cannot see. This is what gives us confidence in our evangelism. It's what gives us hope in our evangelism. And yet we often believe that rejection is the end of the story. Sometimes we see people who have gone off the rails, you know, they've grown up in the church, they've been baptized, and they've just gone off the rails, they've backslidden, someone was like, well, they are way beyond repentance, they're way beyond the grace of God. And there is a sense in which you could look at the Jews and say, how much more so the Jews? I mean, if anybody is beyond the grace of God, it is these people. Nobody had it like they had it. Nobody had the kinds of rights and privileges, like what Paul discussed in Romans chapter 9, right right at the very beginning in verses 4 and 5, all of these amazing rights and privileges, they had it all. They were blessed beyond measure. They rejected. It's like a direct slap in the face to God. But Paul's point is this. If God is willing to save even these Jews who rejected him, and listen, who rejected Jesus Christ, who put him on a cross. There is nobody who's beyond the grace of God. He can still confront and convict and convert the hardest sinner. In fact, God is using Jewish rejection to accomplish his greater plan of redemption. And what Paul lays out here is actually a process that is important to understand. It's a process by which God is continuing to advance His plan of redemption to the nations and for the world. The pattern here is is fairly simple, but I want to just lay it out to you because, again, he comes back to this over and over in, in a variety of different ways in this passage, in this entire chapter. And so here's the pattern that we see. Jewish rejection... Okay? So the gospel goes out you know, through the word of God, through the promises of God to the Jews. The Jews receive, or, or excuse me, they have it, they reject it. Then what happens? We get Gentile reception, right? Because, we saw this last week, because the Jews reject, all of a sudden the gospel goes out to the world, to the Gentiles. The Gentiles receive it, and then, look what he says here. I want you just to see it in the text. Here's the end result. Look at the end of verse one, or verse 11, sorry. So as to make Israel jealous. You see there's a further step here in the plan of redemption? Gentiles receive. Jews reject. Gentiles received. Jewish redemption comes next. This is the pattern that he's going to keep referencing throughout this chapter. We saw last week in Romans 11, 1 through 10, that something stunning happened. The Jews rejected. It brought the gospel to the Gentiles. They received salvation only because of another country's rejection. But then what Paul emphasizes here is so humbling. You Gentiles now have a role to play in the redemptive plan and story of God. And one of, one of your primary roles is to make the Jewish people jealous. The the reference here to making them jealous is a reference right out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's the song of Moses, where Moses predicted that Israel would one day be rebellious and they would provoke God to jealous anger. And as a judgment towards his people, it would be expressed in God then provoking Israel to jealousy. Listen to this. This is right out of Deuteronomy 32. Using those who were not a nation. In other words, Moses said this was going to happen. God is jealous for you, Israel. God wants you to worship him alone, to faithfully bow to him. And, and when you don't, there's a time coming where God is going to cut you off, so to speak. 
And then what he's going to do is he is going to use another nation. He's going to use a nation of people who aren't Jewish. And he's going to make you jealous. Now, I want you to think about sinful jealousy here. Oftentimes we hear jealousy and obviously our minds go like, oh, je- is, is this okay? Like, this sounds pretty sinful. I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to be jealous. It's not what this is talking about here. And it's very simple to understand. This is rightly, this kind of jealousy, rightly wanting something that another person has. It doesn't necessarily have to be sinful. Paul says that when some see, this is his point, that some see the grace of God converting and transforming previously rejected Gentiles, it will actually produce a longing for that same grace and salvation in their own hearts, and it will lead some of them to salvation. Christmas is right around the corner. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, parents, where you've given your child a gift, you know, you're excited, you bought them something, and they open the gift up, and then the look of disappointment on their face is shocking to you. This is kind of like what happened with the nation of Israel. It's like God brings them the gift of of the blessings, the covenant blessings and promises of Scripture. He hands them the gift. They unwrap the gift, and then they look at God, their father, and they say, I hate this gift, and I hate you for giving it to me. Because I think I could give myself a better gift than what you have given to me. And then so God the Father, it's kind of like this, like God, God the Father then says, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Imagine this, parents. Your kids reject the gift. You, know, you walk outside and, and you, you scour the streets to find a, a homeless child who is destitute and dirty. They're an outcast. They are hated by society, right? pushed to the margins. And you scoop them up in your arms. You bring them into your house, filth and all. You set the present before them. And that homeless, destitute, hopeless child grabs hold of the gift and relishes it, embraces it, and thanks you for it. And that child who rejected the gift and rejected you is sitting off in the corner, and here's what God says is going to happen. The majority of the Jews are going to be angry, but some of them are going to look over and say, wait a second, that was my gift. I want my gift back. That was meant for me. And what Paul is saying is that kind of jealousy that longing for, for what was initially theirs and rightly theirs, God is intentionally provoking that through this process so that some reach back out and say, Father, w- would you give that gift back to me? And God says to some of them, yes, come on back and receive back the gift that I have given to this child as well as to you now. And Paul now begins to develop this idea in verses 12 through 15. And I need to tell you that this is where a lot of the debate begins in Romans chapter 11, in, in verse 12 specifically and in verse 15. He says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, we see that so clearly, blessings upon the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, again, the blessings of salvation, the covenant blessings that, are, that, that were once reserved for Israel are now given freely to the church, to Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What does full inclusion mean? That's part of the debate here. Paul goes on to say this, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I glorify or I magnify my ministry. He's saying my ministry brings great, great glory to God and I have no problem telling you about the importance of my ministry, not for my sake but for God's, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So he's picking up again on the same theme of jealousy here. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, again, the gospel going forth to all the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So what does this mean right here? This idea of their acceptance, the full inclusion. What does this idea mean of life from the dead? This is where scholars are all over the map. I probably read 25 commentaries over the last week, and I'm telling you, hardly any one of them agree on all the details on all of this. It's incredibly frustrating. But again, it reminds us of the need for humility when we approach texts like this. Really, the question is, is is what is, look at the end of verse 12, how much, what does how much more refer to? In other words, he's talking about this wonderful thing that's going to happen when the Jews who are jealous are brought in and included. There's this wonderful thing that's going on. What in the world is this wonderful thing, this how much more thing? 
Jewish inclusion means something magnificent in the plan of God, in the plan of God's redemptive story. And it means something much greater than what they're, here's his logic, it means something much greater than what the rejection ultimately meant and the riches that went out to the world. There's something greater even going to be displayed in all of this with the Gentile inclusion. That's the staggering reality of what he's saying here. Something good is going to happen to Jews who are saved. Now, there's three, three main theories about this that I want to quickly just lay out for you, and I'll kind of tell you where I land today, and maybe next week I'll land somewhere different. But the first theory goes something like this. When the Gentiles drive more Jews to believe through that jealousy, that process, it will usher in a marvelous golden age of worldwide blessing. That how much more, in other words, refers to, look, after the Jews finally come in, well, then all of a sudden there's going to be this massive revival amongst the churches, Gentiles just flooding into the church of Jesus Christ, people being saved en masse. And that, in effect, will, will be something like the dead being brought back to life, something resembling a resurrection, this mass revival. That's what some people understand this to be. Now, this sounds fantastic, but it seems to have a problem. I mean, it sounds really exciting, and if this is true, that's absolutely wonderful. It would make sense why Paul is highlighting it. The problem I see in this view is that the context here seems to be dealing explicitly, almost explicitly, with the present. Paul's talking about his own ministry in verses um, 12, uh, 13 and 14. A little bit later on in the passage he, he, in, in, that we'll look at next week, he talks about now, 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 what's going on right now. Also, the problem I see is that the details of this revival with all of these Gentiles getting saved, they're, they're just not in the text. They're just not there. Maybe it's true, but it's not in this passage. That's, that's the problem I have with it it's not abundantly clear in the text. So, I just want to be really, really careful when I don't see something that's obviously clear in the text. The second interpretation goes like this. As Gentiles make Jews jealous, there's going to be a massive conversion of Jews, and then comes the end of the world, then the return of Jesus, and the new heavens and the new earth. So, in other words, the resurrection from the dead, that this death or life from the dead is actually literal. This is, this is what's happening next. So, all of a sudden, you can think of a timeline. You know, the Gentile church is exploding, but there's a day coming when massive amount of Jews are going to be saved. Paul's going to talk about this potentially, if this is true. This could be what all Israel means down in verse um, 26. But the point is this, that after that happens, listen, when we see a world, you know, wholesale Jewish people coming to faith, all of a sudden, the end is coming, the resurrection from the dead. I'll just tell you that, again, that this is obviously, if this is true, wonderful. I, I think this is a very reasonable interpretation, and here's why, because it doesn't invent anything or add anything to the text. This would clearly be an awesome reality. But again, the part of the struggle I have is that Paul seems to be dealing mainly in the present here in the time that he's in, and he's not dealing so much with actually the future, the end of the end. But I just want you to know, I'm very sympathetic to this view. I think this could be right, and I could be persuaded. The third view is kind of where I find myself landing, is that Paul sees this process that we explained as this ongoing process. It's happening right now, and it's going to continue to happen until the end of the age. And, and I think that that's reasonable because of what Paul has already said in Romans chapter 11, that God is still saving a remnant of Jews, right? Paul's an example. He looked at Elijah. Look, God's always had, there's always been in Israel within Israel. God's always been saving the Jews. Just now in this present time, the way he's doing it is through that jealousy that is provoked by Gentiles being saved into the church. And so we have this remnant, this full inclusion this all Israel being saved regularly, all the Israelites, all the ethnic Jews from all times who are being gathered together. I, 
I think this pattern, the way that this works, is intended to be understood as the norm for the remainder of human history. And the wonder of this pattern is that these previous, listen to you, look, why is Paul like say that this is greater, this is more awesome, this greater thing, this more wondrous thing, is because these previously hardened Jews who rejected God and had every privilege, listen, will one day be restored to God. They will experience life from the dead. Those who definitely don't deserve it. By the way, that term life from the dead, the reason I think this refers to salvation is because that's how Paul's already used the term in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. He's described salvation like this. Now, I would add that this seems to be a pattern throughout church history, but I want you to think of it, the way I'm seeing this is kind of a blend between um, view two and three. I think this is the normal pattern throughout all of human history, but it's like a spiraling staircase that eventually could culminate in a final and greater inclusion of ethnic Jews. In other words, this is like this slow trickle effect right now of Jewish people who are being saved. And it's very possible, I would not rule it out, that this could be pointing towards a greater massive inclusion of ethnic Jews at, you know, at, a, at a given point in time in history that could actually usher in the return of Jesus Christ. There's a lot there. And again, I just want to emphasize that humility is required. And if what I'm saying is right, then that means that this idea of the full inclusion, what Paul refers to, I think, as all Israel later in Romans chapter 11, 26, it's simply this, the full number of all the elect Jews, Israelites, from every age, which, by the way, is the same way that he uses the fullness of the Gentiles. However it happens, can I just say this? The point is that God is not finished saving the Jews, and this plan is going to be absolutely stunning, it's going to be awesome, and it's going to give God all the glory. And I think what Paul is wanting to advocate for us is that it's simply humbling to be a part of it. I think that's the way he felt. Look again at verse 13 and 14. He describes his ministry. He says he's speaking to the Gentiles reminding them that he is an apostle to the Gentiles in case some of them thought that, wow, look, Paul, you're an example that God's done with the Jews because you're, go- you're going to the Gentiles. He says, no, you don't understand what my ministry is intended to do. It is intended to reach you Gentiles. But the greater goal even of my ministry is that in, in you being saved through all of my ministry, through all of my efforts, look, my hope is that all of this it would be in order that somehow it would make some of my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You see, Paul expected in his own ministry that this was going to be the pattern. This is going to take place here and now. This is my desire. This is my hope because I believe God is not finished with the Jewish people. The rejection is not the end. Grace is never given to one group purely for their own sake. I want you to hear this. It's not given to end there, but it always has an eye on the hope of this overflow so that God has given grace to you. Listen, the point isn't just so it stops with you. The point is that so you would be so filled up with the grace of God that the spillover effect would be obvious and clear, and it would lead to grace being poured out upon others. This is so humbling to realize that we're we're not actually, my salvation, your salvation is not the ultimate or final end goal. You're not the end of the story. In fact, you are simply a part of the greater story that God is telling, that God is weaving together. And this is how Paul saw his role. It's how we must recognize our role. Our role is to spill that grace over, so yes, it makes Jewish people jealous. We should want Jews to be saved, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But beyond that, we should want people to be jealous of the grace that we have received. All people, both Jews and Gentiles, we should hope that people look at us and they see some of the transforming power and effect of the grace of God in our lives. It's so visible, it's so obvious that people are stunned by it. They see the peace, the forgiveness, the harmony, the rest in our souls, and they look at us and they say, I want what you have. 
been longing for that. I need that. Some of you have had that experience where people have just randomly, you know, maybe, maybe talking with you or, or watching you interact, walked up to you and said, there's just something different about you. It's exactly what should be true of all of us. You see, there is something, this is what this passage means, there, there is some deep intrinsic attractiveness about people who are shaped by grace. So that especially, but not solely, religious unbelievers, when they see real grace transforming a, a church and individuals, they say to themselves, I don't have that, I want that, how do I get that? Look, there's something deeply attractive about humility, isn't there? Isn't this true? There is something deeply attractive about humility and something that is so utterly repugnant about pride. You know what? You just know that. You see that in the world. I mean, you are turned off by people who are proud and arrogant, and there's something so sweet and attractive and magnetic about somebody who is just humble. One of the greatest turnoffs to Christianity, to the Christian faith, is, is arrogant. Some of us really need to hear this and take this to heart. Arrogant, hard-edged, unsympathetic, ungracious, and aggressive demeanor. And, and sadly, you know what I was reflecting on this week? I've seen, I've seen way too much of this in this COVID period. I don't know about you. Sadly, online. But man, has this ever created an opportunity for some who claim the name of Jesus Christ to be a repellent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be so arrogant and brash, to have such an attitude of superiority, to make statements that are so ungodly and ungracious and unchristlike. I mean, you know what the sad truth is, is that is appealing to some who are like that, right? You know, legalism always attracts legalists. Hard-edged people always seem to attract hard-edged people. And this is a great, by the way, check for your own heart to figure out what, what is it that you are attracted to? What is it that you love? Because ultimately, that's what you want to be like. And I'm telling you right now, there is something that is so precious and so sweet and so essential about humility that it is expressed, listen, expressed in this patient, loving, gracious demeanor because it is so foreign and so different than anything the outside world has to offer. Amen? This is, this is so necessary for us. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15 that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You see, there's something that's supposed to be so sweet and attractive. Not everybody's going to want it. But for so many, our manner and our attitudes are going to be such a sweet draw. They're such a witness to the world So let me ask you this morning, we're going to do a bit of a sniff test here. What kind of aroma are you giving off in your life? This is so important. Seriously, what kind of aroma are you giving off in your life when it comes to Christ? Like if people are around you, is, is there something about you that they, 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 so, they, they so value and appreciate? They, they see something so different. They see this humility and this grace. They see the evidence. They see the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, being so overtly manifested in your life that they just want some of that? Or, listen, or, or are you so proud and arrogant, even in how you hold your Christian convictions, that it is repugnant and a repellent, and people want to keep you at arm's length, that the only people who want to be around you are the kind of people who are just like you? And if that's, listen, if that's you, can I just say to you, your opportunity to repent for that sin of arrogance and pride is right here and right now. I mean, just think about what we've heard. This is so humbling, but it's so good because you are not beyond the grace of God. If you simply repent and acknowledge your pride before God, God says, hey, I forgive you. I paid for that. Washed clean. Now let's begin that renovation process where grace can come in and sweep the house clean and find a place to dwell and bear much fruit in your life. 
I found myself asking this question. What, what would happen if somebody, not just individually, walked into this church this morning? What would they think? Would there be in this place a fragrant aroma of the grace of God from the very moment they walked in that parking lot, they drove in that parking lot? Would, would the people who are greeting them just exude a kind of grace and Christ-likeness? Would the people who shook their hands or the people who came up to them after a, a service, would, would the kind of fellowship that takes place amongst brothers and sisters in Christ in this place, would people walk in and say, there is something different here. This is not natural. This can only be explained as supernatural. I mean, church, this is what God calls us to. This is what grace ought to be doing in our lives. We should be so saturated with the grace of God that the humility of Christ is something we embody, and it is fleshed out in how we do life with one another, and it is both uh, an apologetic for the faith, and it is also an attraction to the faith. Paul says that when we see this as our role, We grow in humility. That God wants to use us like this, that's a humbling reality. Secondly, here's how we grow in humility, when we remember our roots. In verse 16 through 24, Paul mixes a couple of metaphors here. And he does so again, the primary purpose is to humble the Gentiles, again, who had begun to think that they were something special. In verse 16, look at what he says. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. There's the two metaphors, the first fruits, the lump, and the tree, the olive tree, and the branches. Now, the first metaphor here is a reference to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. Remember, um, these are people who had the Jewish scriptures. Paul is expecting that they have some familiarity with the word of God that has been entrusted to them. So there in the book of Numbers, Israel is actually commanded to offer the Lord a loaf from the first batch of dough and thereby effectively consecrate the whole batch. The idea of them being made holy is simply saying that they've been set apart in the same way. So the first part uh, is offered to the Lord, and it's not only a reminder of God's provision, it is also a reminder that God is going to gather a harvest that is just like this first lump. There's more coming. Now, here, um, the, uh, the, the batch of dough, it signifies the first fruits, the initial work of God as a pledge. The first fruits are likely Abraham and the patriarchs, those who God made the covenant promises to and gave the covenant blessings to initially and through whom the Christ came. The harvest is the Jews that God intends to save, and I think it's as well pointed towards the Gentiles. So it's pointed towards the fact that there's more Jews coming in, and there's more also Gentiles going to be included. But his point is that the latter harvest is not more important than the first fruits. In fact, it's the other way around. The first fruits are the guarantee of the later harvest. He moves quickly now to a parallel metaphor of an olive tree and branches, and he essentially argues for the same point. And the point he's making here is that it would be absolutely absurd for a branch to argue that it was more important than the root. The tree here is an olive tree, which historically and biblically often represents the nation of Israel. I think what it represents here are the promises of God to the Jewish people. The rich sap of grace running through those promises and nourishing the branches that are attached. That the branches are the Jewish people who are naturally getting those promises of God. Naturally by virtue of, yes, their, their ethnicity in a sense, where they were handed again these privileges and these promises. These promises that came through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Gentiles are like branches from a wild olive tree. That's the comparison he's making here. A wild olive tree was fruitless. It was uncultivated. And he's telling the Jews that you you weren't some desirable, fruitful branch that God just had to have, that God just so desperately needed, that you were something special. You were a wild, fruitless, dead branch that God graciously grafted into the promises. 
You did not naturally deserve them. You should have not naturally had them, but God has adopted you and He has anchored you in so that you now are nourished by the sweet sap of grace that was once reserved for ethnic national Israel primarily. There's no reason for boasting, is what He's saying. Do you see that again in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supported the root, but the root that supports you. You're a benefactor of their rejection. You're a benefactor of the fact that God chose them and gave them the promises. You have nothing to boast in. And by the way, neither did the Jews. You're standing on Jewish roots, he tells the Gentile church. And his main point in verse 19 there is that boasting cut the unbelieving unbelieving Jew from the roots. Lop them right off of the tree. And if the Gentiles aren't careful, their boasting will get them cut from the same root. It's not talking about losing your salvation. He's simply saying, listen, that if you think you're in, this is like the Jews, they thought they were in, because they had all the rights and privileges. Like, you know, it's like saying to you, Christian, you're, well, I'm in because I, look at me. I'm sitting here this morning. I, I got out of bed this morning. I came to church. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Say, like, no, no, not, not if you're actually living in arrogant unbelief and self-righteousness like the Jews. If it happened to them, it could happen to you. Don't be mistaken. It's kind of like one of those rags to riches stories. We all like a good rags to riches story. We love seeing somebody who was nothing, they came, maybe they were poor, destitute, maybe an actor or an athlete, you know, you pick your poison, and, 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 you know, again, they were nothing, they had no hopes, very little opportunities, and then all of a sudden, a few people helped them along, and now they've risen to stardom, they're at the top of the top, and like happens to so many of them, right, they become arrogant and conceited and they begin to believe, like, I did this for myself. Look, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Look how impressive I am. They become arrogant brats. Well, that's the, the risk that the Gentiles are running right here. This is kind of what's beginning to happen in their midst. How do you grow in Humility. Well, the same way somebody who rose from the ashes into stardom would, you remember your roots. You remember who you were. It keeps you humble. And, and for those of us who are Gentiles in this room, listen, can you just hear this? The only reason you were chosen for the team is because the coach's kid got suspended. <laughs> it wasn't because you were good enough. And part of the reason that you were chosen was to actually help turn the coach's kid around. <laughs> you were no better than weeds. We were no better than kindling. We were dead branches, only worthy of being thrown in the fire. Remember your roots and that the roots support you. You would be nothing apart from the promises and the Christ who fulfills the promises by His obedience and by His propitiation, and God graciously grafted you in to now receive all the promises that were previously reserved for Israel. What connects a branch to the life-giving root? Verse 20 tells us, it's not works, it's not human merit, not anything we can boast of, but only faith, empty-handed submission to Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not works righteousness, it is bowing before the only righteous one and recognizing that you yourself are unworthy and undeserving. You are a sinner only deserving of God's justice and wrath for all of eternity, but God so loved you and so loved the world that He sent His only Son to stand in your place, to suffer God's wrath on your behalf, and then to turn around and give you His perfect righteousness so that you can stand before God for all eternity, justified, robed in the precious righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is available for all who repent and believe. And the response to this is so clear. Do not become proud, He says, but fear. 
Pride is the heart of unbelief and self-righteousness. Fear here is equated with faith that receives the righteousness of God, that recognizes human inadequacy and the necessity of a divine substitute. One commentator Uh, Douglas Moo, he says this about this kind of fear. He says, this basic biblical concept combines reverential respect for the God of majesty and glory with a healthy concern to continue to live out of the grace of God in our lives. This is incredibly humbling. And the good news of God's grace, what is most humbling of all, is found in the last two verses. Let's look quickly as we close. He says in verse 23 and 24, and even they, coming back full circle, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, do you realize it is not a difficult, it was a hard enough thing for God to take a wild olive branch and graft it in. Do you want to know what's way more natural? Let's take the natural branch and stick it back in. God, you think God couldn't save the Jews? You think God couldn't save those who have rejected him and are hard-hearted? Think again. God has the power to overcome the hardest heart. Wonder of wonders. The hardest heart is no match for the glorious grace of God. If you have been rejecting God, can I just say to you today, if this has been your story, would you receive him today? Would you repent and believe and find life from the dead? You are not too far gone for the grace of God. And if you are saved today, if you're in Christ today, would you rejoice with me in the kindness of God that has led us to repentance? We do not receive the severity of God because we are in Christ Jesus. We are the recipients of his kindness and how humbling, this is how humbling it is because of that to recognize our role, our role to attract others, both Jew and Gentile, to Christ by the power of his transforming grace in us. How humbling to remember our roots that we were once far off but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who were once not a people have become part of the people of God May the grace of God keep us humble and useful. Let's pray.